Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. I'm Cam Connor, and this is episode 13. I'm all here with my son, Chris. Before we get into this 13th podcast, I had asked previously about, I had a trivial question, and the question was, which player was uh, given a million dollars to leave the World Hockey Association? And I think I gave a clue that the Spent big bucks to pull this guy out of the Boston Bruin organization. The correct answer is Derek Sanderson. You can Google that fella. He was very popular in Boston, but he was a little on the wild side. I do believe that Derek is the color commentator for the Bruins right now. Hell of a hockey player, giving a million bucks to leave. I think we'd all take a million to leave our job, wouldn't we? And we got a lot of submissions for that, and I think we, there was a handful of player, people that knew that Derek Sanderson was the right answer, and I was not one of them. But we'll continue with finishing up with the WHA, and there was one thing that we forgot to mention last time, and that was the last time that you got to meet Gordie Howe, and I was lucky enough to, to be with you and meet Gordie Howe for the first time. So do you have any thoughts on meeting Gordie what was it, four or five years ago? Well, four or five years ago, Gordy was in Edmonton with his son Mark, excuse me, with his son Marty. And so I reached out to them and they connected with me and I uh, went and connected with Marty and, and Gordy and we were at a sports bar in Edmonton called Shanks. And we reminisced and I introduced him to a lot of people that I knew at Shanks. And he, Gordy was gracious enough to sign all the autographs, as he always did. And I do remember, you know, Gordy, he was 82 that day. And his, his memory, it was going a little bit, but expected at 82. I, you know, we were sitting at this table, and I said, Gordy, you sh- it's a sports bar. I said, you should autograph this table, because Gordy Howe has a distinct signature. You definitely know it's Gordy. So Gordy started, he was, he wrote his name on the table. And I thought it'd be just great, you know, when we left and somebody would see it, they'd be happy and they'd probably preserve that on the table. But Marty said, no, no, we're not doing that. And so Marty made Gordy erase his secrets. So, so Shanks, Shanks, I'm sorry I tried to get you Gordy House autograph on one of your tables, but Marty said no. So, anyways, that was the last time that I was with Gordy and Marty, and it was uh, it was great to see those those two again. And as we know, Gordy has left us now, and uh, again, I'm I'm very pleased that I got to see him one more time. So, you recently attended the Edmonton Oilers game against Toronto Maple Leafs, and you were up in the press box and tweeted out a photo. But something really interesting happened during near the end of the game, actually when the Oilers player Chris Russell was in front of his own net and ended up scoring on his own goal. So I wanted to know what you thought about that and also how common that is for a player to score on his own team. Well, how common is it? It doesn't happen too often. 
if it happens to anybody, it's usually a defenseman because they're the ones that are around the net uh, a lot more than the forwards are. And as far as Mr. Russell is concerned, I read the paper the next day and, and everybody on his team, plus the coach, came to his defense. He would feel bad that he did it. As it turned out, if I'm not mistaken, that was the game-winning goal, no less. And he's going to feel bad. So nobody really has to say a word. It's just one of those things that happen. This fella is such a positive person. He contributes every night he's on the ice. And if a mistake is made, certainly that's what the word is, a mistake. It wasn't like he was aiming at the net. He was trying to clear it away from the front of the net. And I would guess sometimes you may get disoriented as to whereabouts, you know, what angle versus where the net is when you try to clear it away from that danger zone. You know what, it's unfortunate that uh, it happened to be the winner, but again, these things happen, and they have 82 games they play plus playoffs. It'll all be forgotten once they get into the playoffs. So what was the vibe of the arena after that happened since you were there? Well, I think everybody, you know, was bummed out because when you go to the Oilers game, now having said that, I won't say everybody was because probably at least half were had Toronto Maple Leaf jerseys on. And I think so the Leafs fans were pretty happy. But if you were an Oilers fan and you've actually followed the Oilers from the beginning and you know how Mr. Russell plays, I... Uh, I think you're going to, you know, you feel bad that your team lost, but I can't see anybody who knows the game of hockey, knows how valuable this order player is to the team, would ever lose any sleep over it. It happened. It's too bad. And, you know, overall, I guess, you know, it gives uh, the fans something to talk about the next day, you know, at work. But overall, I think nobody is putting them to the cross. So do you remember a time on your team that this happened, the same situation? When I look back, and I played 10, 11 seasons, and I've watched a lot of games, I don't recall it ever happening on my team. It probably did, but I I just don't remember. And if it did, it probably wasn't a game-winning goal. And I've watched, obviously, a lot of hockey, whether it's on TV or watching juniors or whatever. It happens, but it's it's pretty rare. It really is. Well, at least uh, you don't remember you doing that in the past on a previous game, so that's good. Now, I probably would have hit the post. So we also were going to bring up your prediction from one of our first podcasts when I asked you how you thought Las Vegas would do, and you thought they would make the playoffs, and you, you got a bit of criticism and some pushback from people who didn't think you were right, but as of the beginning of December, your prediction looks like it's pretty good. They're second in their division. Do you have any thoughts so far? Yes, LA Kings, I believe, is in first. They're in second. Well, again, I I just, and I don't even know if this is the right words, but let me just use the words. The other teams, it was, you know, George McPhee being the GM. He, you can only protect so many players. And so I was going to use the words, you know, the word cast off, but they're not because I believe it was 10 players you're allowed to secure. So, you know, you're 11, 12, 13. These are some pretty good hockey players. So it wasn't like in the when the world hockey merged with the NHL, the world hockey team, they were only allowed to keep two hockey players and the NHL teams who they drafted from 
were allowed to keep 15 players. So present day was only 10. So there were some good hockey players. And if you did your homework, this put it this way. When they got Fleury in that from Pittsburgh, that made a world of difference. If you got a guy that could stop a puck in that, he's going to win you games just by being a good goalie, just in a conversation. And so George had a lot of good players to choose from. He did a good job in hindsight. But, I mean, I knew he would. George took his time. And he wasn't out to make friends with the other GMs. He was out to put a good team on the ice. And if his asking price to not take certain players was too high, he didn't care if he had people mad at him. His job is to put the best team on the ice for Las Vegas, and I knew he would do that. And so I'm, I'm happy for Vegas. I'm happy. Well, let's put it this way. When you pay $500 million for a new franchise, I think that the NHL wants to see a brand new team put people in the building. If you remember 30 years ago or 40 years ago when Washington Capitals first came in, holy cow, they lost season after season after season. LA Kings struggled for many, many years. They couldn't put a very good team on the ice, and they were not drawing. So they learned from their mistakes. They allowed the new franchise in Vegas to put a good team on the ice, and it's paid dividends, and I believe they're going to be attracting fans for the near future. So as I talk to some people that listen to our podcast, a lot of people like your hockey stories, but it's interesting. People are saying that they they like the off-topic stories sometimes even more. So I know one story that you have about uh, rollerblades and investing is kind of interesting. So if you want to talk about that. I would say it was like uh, 1981. Herb Brooks was the coach. It was 81 or 82. Herb Brooks was the coach with the New York Rangers. And all our staff, that uh, the scouts and a lot of the management were all American. And these fellows out of Minneapolis, St. Paul, I believe, Minnesota, had approached management. And one of them had a connection within the Ranger organization. So after a practice, we were told, all of us, to shower up and go sit in the stall. And uh, there was somebody that wanted to come talk to us. So we all showered up and sitting in our stalls. And here comes a young man. He's got this new product. And it's he called it Inline Skates. Ro- well, everybody knows what Inline Skates is today. But at the time, you know, we were used to rollerblades with two wheels beside each other front and back and this guy had the new concept so there was a skate out called lang which was a plastic molded kind of skate and what they would do is you would you would you would take the rivets out of your skates and and put in these inline roller blades where the where the wheels there were four of them were lined up one behind each other just like a skate blade so he came with his his and these were not you would have to buy your own skates and put his product on your skates. So he just showed us what it looked like, and here's his rollerblade, and here's his concepts. And and so he just said, you know, he needs some seed money to make this happen, and was any of us interested in invent, investing, you know, with him for his new product? And Do you remember how much uh, he asked you for? Well, he, he would take anything we wanted to give him. And so at the time, you know, we're sitting in the dressing room, and let's just make this up. So 
if we said, okay, we'll give you 10 grand, we'll give you 15 grand. Um, you know what? If I've lost lots of money in investments over the years. So you lose 10 or 15. It's not changing your lifestyle. Your family's not going without, you know, when you're a hockey player, you're making a good salary. I just didn't see him really catching on. And so not one of the Rangers stepped forward with any money. And so this guy walked out of the dressing room, no takers. Just to tell you how popular it is, many, many years later, obviously uh, we knew it caught on big time. I was in Turkey, and I seen kids in Turkey rollerblading, you know, with their inline skates going down the street. So that was a big opportunity that all of us missed out. We could have got in there at the ground floor. It would have been nice. So that's just one of my many opportunities to make money. But I have always learned my lessons the hard way, and that was one that I missed out on. But the Rangers did buy everybody from this kid. Their frame for the inline skates, and so they had these lang skates that the Rangers gave us to train with in the off season. And you know, I certainly enjoyed uh, doing my rollerblading with them. And you know, obviously, you're using the same skating muscle, so it it was it was good for training. But again, I missed out on it, as did the other guys. So, Dad, you know that we've been approached by a few companies that wanted to sponsor the podcast, and we turned them down. But we finally found one that aligns with the people that are listening to our podcast and I think adds a lot of value. And funny enough, I actually have used this uh, company's services before. So the company is called SeatGeek. And Seat as in S-E-A-T. Yes, SeatGeek. And they're all about buying tickets to sports and concerts, which they say can be complicated and confusing. But there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or need to find the perfect gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best price, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a greater value. So I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it is the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. Uh, I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. For me, and actually you were with me, Dad, we used this app for the Red Hot Chili Pepper tickets that we went to. And we have an offer at the end of this that uh, you get to save $20 with the code PENALTY, which we didn't have, so we paid full price tickets, but we got amazing seats using SeatGeek. So that's one of the reasons why we want to partner with this company. So SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed. So you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. So for our listeners, SeatGeek has offered $20 off if you use the promo code PENALTY. So P-E-N-A-L-T-Y. Sorry to interrupt here, but it's not only hockey tickets or football, it's concerts. Like, it's all the tickets, so 
you can check it out. I think all of us like to save money nowadays, so check it out. Yeah, and Christmas is coming, so if you can, if you're planning to buy some tickets and you want to save twenty dollars, download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Penalty. So we've done a great job of covering your career and different players that you played with, different teams, but people are interested to know why did your career end? And I know you've alluded to it a bit in terms of injuries. I thought the topic for today where we can go into more depth is why did you retire? How did it come about? And how was the transition to life after hockey? Well, let's start off uh, in the game of hockey. The statistic that I last saw a few years ago that the average career in hockey, in pro hockey, only lasted three, four, five years. That's it. So the great majority of players, they're in and they're out. I lasted 10 or 11 years. You know, so there, there's obviously a few players that defensemen seem to have a longer shelf life in the NHL than forwards do, for the most part. And so I was 30, 31 years old when I retired. My biggest setback was fell on the ice in training camp and I hit my back against the goalpost. Playing for what team? For the Rangers. And I was having a good training camp. They had had me on the farm team for a couple years in a row, which I did very well. And they weren't bringing me back up. And then I did well again in the playoffs. So they told me that I was on the team next year. I'd be the only guy that could uh, prevent myself from making that team. So I worked so hard in the summer. I was ready. Uh, I always worked hard in the offseason, but I worked especially hard because I had to get out of that minors. So Herb Brooks told me, he said, there's some people in the organization that don't want you here, which was Craig Patrick, who was the general manager and the boss. So that's not a good guy to have not like you. But he said, you're here, and only you can play yourself off. So again, I worked hard all summer. I was having a good training camp. I went into the goalpost. I hurt my back. And you know, you, you're a hockey player. You tough it out. And so it was sore. And then the next day, I had trouble walking, and they misdiagnosed it. They said that, you know, there was nothing on the x-rays and that I I must have a, a muscular problem. So they put a 25-pound weight vest on me and had me try to skate on the ice and try to run with it on. I could barely move my legs, never mind run with it on, but I tried. Anyways, my injury got compounded, and it bothered me for close to two years. It kept me off skates, and uh, I was down helping the farm team out in New Haven, Connecticut, and the team doctor saw me hobbling and hobbling, the orthopedic surgeon. And he said, Cam, I just feel bad for you. He said, you know, nobody seems to care about you in the Ranger organization, so let's start from the beginning. I'm going to order the x-rays, and let's just start trying to figure out what's the matter with you. So I could have driven from New Haven to New York City in two, two and a half hours, picked up the x-rays and driven back. Well, the doctor asked Dr. Scott, who was the orthopedic surgeon for the Rangers, for the original x-rays. It took over three months before it finally arrived. And I happened to be in the doctor's office in New Haven when they arrived, and they held it up to the light. The first thing he said within 20 seconds, he says, You've got two cracks in your vertebrae here and here. He advised me at that point. He said, you know what, you should should hang up the skates and don't try to come back. Because if you do, 
you could end up in a wheelchair if uh, the worst comes to worst with that bad back of yours. And so once I found out what my problem was, it took a long time to start rehabbing it in the right direction. A lot of it had to do with rest and stretching. And so I did everything I was told and, and, you know, it took a long time, but it finally got to the point where I could function like a regular human being. So that was the end of my career. And wasn't there some kind of connection to you watching tennis at the U.S. Open? Well, what that was is right after I fell into the post, uh, I'd said that, you know, it started hurting later on that day and the next day. So basically that night, you know, I was hobbling, but I went and watched the the tennis. uh, And sure enough, after the game, I could barely get to the vehicle. So that's when it didn't didn't affect me like that minute. It was sore, but it just got worse and worse, and I just happened to be at the tennis matches when it uh, when it boiled over. So then when you you know that your injury is not going to get better, what's the process in terms of actually retiring? Do you just call up the ranger's office and say, I'm done, or was it unspoken? Well, you know, I think uh, my usefulness to the rangers was over. I would have stayed in hockey all my life. I loved it so much. And I know there's some hockey players that honestly don't even like the game anymore. They didn't really want to do it. But, you know, they were offered jobs. So they said, sure, that's all they knew how to do. I wanted somebody to offer me something, you know, within the world of hockey because I loved it. It wasn't a job. I loved it. But I never got that opportunity. So I got into the 9-to-5 world, you know, got into computer consulting for 25 years. I've only had two jobs since I've been out of hockey. So when you retired, did you have a lot of players that reached out to you and, you know, tried to see how you were doing? Or is it one of those things where it's almost like you're tainted and <laughs> no one wants to, to touch that? Well, I wouldn't say you're tainted, but when your career is over, just kind of like when you get traded. Now... If you ended uh, your career like a Wayne Gretzky or a Phil Esposito, you know, doors are always open for you in any rink you go to. But when you're just somebody that works real hard and like like myself, um, when my career was over, I didn't have anybody reaching out, you know, from the Rangers because I stayed in New York that really followed up to see how I'm doing or let's get together for a beer. They were living their life, and I was living my life, and my life had changed. They're still doing playing hockey for a living, and like I said, I was doing 9-to-5, commuting into New York City every day. So we went in separate directions, and when I did go back into the dressing rooms, it felt foreign in there. I didn't know everybody, and and I, I, it, it's just an awkward feeling, and you could talk to players that have been in a similar situation. It's it's. it's it's only things that we put in our own head. I'm sure the guys in the team would have been happy to see me, but I didn't. I, I knew I wasn't part of that team anymore, so I just went about and lived my own life. So, how did you find the transition out of hockey? Because I know nowadays they help the players a bit more, but it sounds like when you retire, that when you're done, you're done. There's no services. There's no one to talk to or transition into the real world because your kind of job is really isolated and and specific. Well, you're right about that, Chris. When my career is over, one of the things that I did 
is I wrote down on a piece of paper five things that I would like to do for a living. Because if you're going to be doing 9 to 5 for 30 or 40 years, you better do something that you like to do. Because if, if you're just picking a career because it pays well, and you don't like it, it's going to be tough getting up every morning and going to work. So I wrote down five different things, and I don't even remember what they were, but I knew one of the things I wrote down was computers. And I didn't know where I would fit in there. You know, you start talking to people. One of the things that I didn't want was when I retired from hockey and and was getting into the real world, I did not want to be the type of dad that's laid off every second or third year, uh, setting that example to my children. So I was prepared to go back to school, graduate with something that I could move into. Or I told myself, unless you can find a real good job, you know what, then you don't have to go back to school. So I remember, really, you get the Rangers and Craig Patrick, like they didn't help me one little bit. I know with Glenn Sather there, he is so much better with the players. He, he's he's fantastic. But back then, again, as I mentioned, Craig wasn't you know a big fan of mine. But when the career was over, I reached out to him and I asked him, Craig, could you maybe help me out? Because, you know, all your Fortune 500 companies are in New York City and a lot of them have season tickets. Maybe you could give me a list of some of the of the Fortune 500 companies out of New York City and maybe I could reach out to them to see if there's an opportunity and, and maybe going in, in a different direction out of New York City. But maybe I figured getting a list of some of the season ticket holders would be a starting point. And he just said, absolutely not. And so what I actually did is I reached out to other people then that I met while I played hockey. They had given me some names of companies in the computer consulting business. And so what I did is I knocked on doors in New York City and I was prepared to learn a new trade. I'd made money playing hockey so that, you know, I could take a low salary while I learned the business and... So I knocked on doors and I gave my resume to HR people and they looked at it and they said to me, well, it's all freaking hockey. What can you do for us? And I said, well, I was hoping you could tell me because I knew I just needed one company out there to say, you know what, we'll train you. And I was searching. So I got rejected and rejected. I found that one company that started me off and they started me off as a recruiter. I'll never forget it, the very first day of work, I'm all excited, and they sat me down, and they gave me, oh, I bet you there must have been at least six or seven books over a foot high, and they said, start reading this. Well, you talk about information overload. By the end of the day, I didn't even remember anything I read. It was just like Chinese. And then they sent me to a job fair the very next day where people were giving me their resumes. I don't know if anybody out there has seen IT resumes, but you've got to start to understand the operating systems, the databases, the computer languages, and so on, and the various positions. It's a learning curve. And so, like, the second day on the job, oh, my God, I got embarrassed so much. But I knew I had to start somewhere, and uh, I did. like I said, I did it for 25 years. And so it was tough. I was on my own. I had hoped that uh, I would be successful. I did a pretty good job, and they threw me right into sales, and and I've done well in sales ever since. And I think you should be proud of yourself because you have friends, and I've met some people that 
definitely took a different path in their lives after retiring from hockey and not knowing what to do. Well, you're right. You know, I won't name any names, but I know people here in Edmonton. Like uh, one guy, you know, he had over 10, 12 jobs. And how do you support a family when you just keep bouncing from job to job to job? And I don't know if it was that person wasn't any good at what he was doing or he realized he couldn't make any money doing what he was doing or he didn't like what he was doing or maybe he didn't enjoy the people, you know, around him. Like, I really don't know and I never did ask this guy, you know, why did you bounce around so much? But I do know quite a few guys that have struggled out of hockey till, until they find what they're looking for. And again, you've got to do something that you enjoy. Because as I said earlier, you got to get up for 30 or 40 years going to a job you don't like. Oh, oh, it's going to be a long 30 or 40 years. So I was fortunate. I got into a good field that was growing. I always worked alongside a wonderful people. Had a lot of fun. That's that's kind of how I my transition was knocking on doors, and it was uh, hopefully I don't have to go back to school. But as it worked out, uh, I didn't have to, and I've enjoyed enjoyed sales for over thirty years now. And then on the side, so you're doing this podcast, which is not making us money, but it's fun to do. But you do public speaking when you're asked, and. Some of the places that you've spoken at have been uh, jails and prisons where you're trying to motivate some of those people who are down on their luck for sure. Do you have any stories about speaking at prisons? Well, the one that comes to mind was a few years back. There was a fellow that I worked with and he said that his son needed somebody to go into one of the, it's called the Edmonton Maximum Prison. So they got murderers in there and talk to the prisoners. He said, I said, well, about what? He said, well, talk about, you know, your training techniques and, you know, maybe tell them some hockey stories. And, and he got some kind of credit in school for doing this. So anyways, I said, I'd do it for him. So I go to the Edmonton Max, and I've never been to prison before. I really didn't know what to expect. So we get there, and we're going into the general population, and I got a couple prison guards going in there with me, and they take me to an area where it looked like just like a boardroom inside the prison. And and they got 12 murderers. These guys are all in there because they murdered somebody. And so this was about 6.30 at night. We go in there. The guards say to me, okay, at 6.30 now, we'll be back at 9 o'clock. And I remember saying to myself, you got to be shitting me, man. You're not leaving me with the murderers just in the general population till 9 o'clock. Well, he did, and I couldn't pretend I was a little nervous. So, first thing I said, to, well, I looked around the room, and 11 out of the 12, they looked like they could be your neighbors. They just didn't, they weren't scary looking, but obviously they clicked out, and they did something they regret. And so, but there was one guy, he was a, you could tell he'd been lifting weights, and he'd been in there. He was a scary looking guy, and he was tilting on his chair with his feet up on the table, so I thought I'd introduce myself, and I went around and said, Hi, I'm Cam Connor, and they introduced themselves, and we shook hands, and then I got to that great big bodybuilder guy. And I said, hi, and I put my hand out. I said, Hi, Cam Connor, how you doing? And he just, he didn't reach to shake my hand. He, he had his arms folded across his chest, and he just said, he nodded his head. He said, My name is God. Oh, yeah, okay, hi, God, how you doing? So 
I went up and I started talking to these guys, and I talked to them for two and a half hours, and they told me that I was the best speaker that they ever had in the prison, probably because they can't get too many, I don't know. But they said I was the best they had, and, uh, you know, I think I entertained them for two and a half hours, but one of the stories that I was telling them is, is they'd asked, you know, I talked about training back in the day, and I said, well, when I play with the Canadians, you know, I would do a lot of wind sprints, as the other guys would, and long distance running in the weights. I said, but Guy Lafleur, when he came to training camp, he had told me he hadn't skated all summer, and it didn't even look like he'd been off skates at all. His timing and his speed was there, and and I said, so what did you do all summer? He says, well, I have a trampoline in my backyard, and I worked out on my trampoline every day. I, at this prison, you can look out some windows, and you can actually you can see from the highway that goes by, there was an outdoor hockey rink. So I said to these guys, you guys have a hockey team, do you? And then one guy says, no, we used to. And I said, why don't you have a, a team anymore? And they said, well, the inmates keep stealing the blades. I said, okay, I get it. And as I mentioned, I said, you know, I talked to them about Gila for using a trampoline. I said, so do you guys uh, have a trampoline here you work out on? They all started laughing at me. And I'm, I'm a little naive. And so I'm saying, what's so funny? Finally, one fella says to me, Mr. Connor, if we had a trampoline in here, we'd put it right up against the wall and hop right over. He said, so they're not going to give us a trampoline. I said, oh, good point. I said, I, I never thought about that. So that was like the first story that comes to my mind, Chris, about uh, speaking to the prisoners. And by the way, when I left there, they said to me, you know, are you going to come back, right? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm coming back. Oh, no way I was coming back, I can tell you. <laughs> well, that's a good way to wrap up this episode. So keep sending your questions at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com or send a tweet on Twitter to Cam Connor NHL. Until next time, I'm Chris. I was going to say one other thing. I, you know, there are people that like some of my stories that are outside of hockey. I don't know how deep I should get into some of these things, but if you want to write in, and uh, like I've got stories about in the off-season, guys chasing me with a double-bladed axe, and another time a guy pulled a buck knife on me. And i got some crazy stories. Um, you know, Maybe you want to write in and say you want to hear them or forget about it. Okay, you heard it. So if you do want, we're curious. Do you want to hear hockey stories? Do you want to hear a mix of both? Do you like the non-hockey stories? So let us know. And until next time, again, I am Chris. And I'm Cam.